Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have Claudia Arsenault, author of numerous short stories, the trilogy City of Spires, and she is also co-editor of Wings of Renewal, a solar punk dragon anthology, and curator of the Aromantic and Asexual Speculative Fiction Database. Welcome to the show, Claudia. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So I always start with, tell us about yourself and your work. All right. Well, I'm um, I'm a writer from Quebec City. I'm uh, not a English native speaker, and French is pretty important to me, and it's slowly entering my work. Mostly, I write fantasy and science fiction, uh, and I tend to have large queer cast in everything I write, from my very first novel, Viral Waves, to uh, Sea of Spires, which is <laughs> pretty much the novel with a large cast of queer characters. I like to include a lot of them from everywhere on the spectrum, but especially uh, asexual and aromantic characters because that's who I am. And there's not a lot of them. Well, there's a, there is a lot of them out there, but they're not that easy to find yet. And yeah, that's kind of what I do. I tend to write more long novels than shorter work. I do have a bunch of the short stories out there that I wrote through the years, but I identify more as a novel writer. And I think that mostly covers it for now. That's perfect. So you mentioned, obviously, French is your primary language and English is a second language. But do you primarily write in English? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the only things I have in French are stuff I wrote when I did my creative writing program for one year. So I do have beginnings of novels in French and a few short stories, but I write almost exclusively in English. So we had Carolina Fedek on a while back. And they talked about how they primarily also write in English. Uh, they also have stories in Polish, but it was interesting that they had made that decision to write primarily in English. So why English as opposed to your primary language? It started because most of the fantasy and science fiction I was reading at the time was in English. When I got good enough to read the novels in the languages that they were written in, I chose that over translations because you sometimes lose a lot of stuff in translations. So when I I got to writing through role-playing games and I got through uh, to role-playing games, mostly Dungeon and Dragon style, through reading a lot of the Forbidden Realms novels as a teenager. So a lot of my vocabulary and the way I was thinking about these things were was already in English. So uh, I started writing in English that way. And I chose to keep going because I was, uh, one, I was getting better and better at it. And second, it was easier to find a community and a market for it in English. I think maybe I was just wasn't looking at the right places in French because 
it's definitely out there too, but it, it felt easier in English. That's really fascinating that it, it's because your language, in terms of what you had read, was already there in English. That's just fascinating. I, I hadn't really thought about that. And I imagine it affects a lot of people who not necessarily their first language is English because so much of science fiction and fantasy, as you say, is primarily in English, unfortunately, and hopefully we get more in other languages moving forward and translated works. So now back to your work. So let's start with the City of Spires trilogy. The first two books are already out, City of Strife and City of Betrayal, correct? Yeah, the City of Strife was released in uh, last February, and uh, City of Betrayal came out just this October. Awesome. Congratulations. So you've called it a multi-layered political fantasy led by an all LGBTQIA plus cast and fans of complex storylines, strong friendships, and found families. That's what is in those books. So tell us about the City of Spires, the series in general, and the characters. Okay, so the reason I tend to talk about a very large queer cast is that I have over 20 narrators in this. It's I tend to call it a mosaic kind of point of view cyber writing because the point is not to follow one specific character as much as see how these people interact with each other and with the storyline to kind of move forward and build the story and build the city and the setting. And every single person that narrates anywhere in the trilogy is queer. There's no exception to these rules. Sometimes it's not canon in either the first or the second book. Some of them are still not stated yet, but it, it will all get to it in the three books. And essentially, this is a city where um, all the politics are done mostly through money and through appearances. And there are small families of merchants. They're actual families. They are blood-related, most of them. And they form a political unit. And the more money they have, the more power they have, they, the more seats they have on the table. And now there's this outside force that comes in with a lot of money because they're from an empire. So they that throws the city out of balance. And one of the merchant families decides to go against them because they're also slavers and hassles. And it's both that story and also how once you start to upset that balance, you affect everybody. Not just because those the, the merchant families are nobles, but a lot of my characters are of uh, people from what I call the lower city because it's built in towers. So the rich people are on top and the, the poor ones are at the bottom. And a lot of the characters come from that environment and it's, they're still heavily affected by the fights that happen up there, obviously. So it's the interaction of everything, which is why it's multi-layered. It's, it's several plot lines that eventually crisscross and like influence one another. I've seen you talk specifically about found families before. So why is that something that attracts you in terms of what you're writing? I think it's something that started appealing to me first because there's a lot of them in fantasy and science fiction in the, the way we build adventure groups or crews and stuff like that. And often in these stories, the romance isn't as permanent. It's not as important. The found families are very often a group of friends or start as friends that get together through events and that support each other. And that it doesn't require Romans to be strong. And I, that really appealed to me probably because I'm really a romantic. So it's an important thing to me. I, I don't think I realized how, 
how and why until I started thinking about it while writing City of Strife. But having all of these groups of characters that, that aren't related through blood or, or romance just form the tightest, most supportive groups is really, really essential to me. One of the other things that you talk a lot about, and I think this is how I found you in the first place on Twitter, was the subgenre that I've already mentioned, and it's Viral Airwaves and Wings of Renewal both are working within it, and that's solar punk. First, for our listeners, can you tell them, those who are not familiar with it, what solar punk is, and then what attracts you to that subgenre? Yeah, solar punk is, it's a hopeful, futuristic, community-driven, green future subgenre of science fiction. So essentially, um, it's everything I would, you know, want out of my science fiction. I'm less of a space person, more of a political, uh, ecology type of environment science type of person. And solar punk really draws on that. But instead of bringing forward stories where the world was destroyed because of climate change and everything like that, it usually goes, what if we actually manage to work together and prevent this to some extent? And the, the sum can be like a large extent, as much as it can be, we only prevented parts of it. And we're now dealing together with the fallout. But it's a very, it's a very, it's not an individualistic star. It's people working together, working through their issues and being taking care of each other. It doesn't have, even when there's post-apocalyptic trends to it, it doesn't have the abandon on the weak parts that I hate. So yeah, that's, that's part of what I like about it. It's also, it, it tends to be really political, like more so, more openly so than other genres because pretty much every writing is political in some way. But solar punk doesn't hide or pretend not to be. It shouldn't ever anyway. And that's what drew me to it. Viral airwaves, though, has been called dystopic solar punk. So how do you mesh those two things together? And I, I tend myself to kind of call it solar punk light because viral airwaves exa- existed long before I found the genre. It just kind of fits into it but not completely it fits into it because it it absolutely has the green energy everything is solar powered because they they lost their oil oil to a bacteria like 10 years before the novel and it has solar punk because it is about people teaming together to um overthrow a government that shouldn't be there and put something better in place and it has a lot of my own political awakening in it, you can see it mostly towards the last quarter of the novel because there are protests in it that are drawn from my political and personal experience being in one and being in one that didn't go well too. So that's the parts that are more sorrowful. But it definitely, it, I've said before that it is as if I placed and I, I wrote the story at, of this world at the moment where it chose to go solar punk instead of dystopic. It's kind of the moment where it could have gone a lot worse. It could have been terrible. And instead, because it has a mostly happy ending, it, instead it decided to actually move forward together. That's my type of story these days, especially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I've seen people recently complain on Twitter that they couldn't find optimistic science fiction. And I'm, I kind of just wanted to tell them to just look at solar punk, all of it. It's supposed to be at the very core of the genre, 
And it's one of the most important things I had when we picked stories for Wings of Renewal was there has to be some hope in it. That's awesome. Um, I look forward to checking that out too. So one of the things that you've been working on is the aromantic and asexual speculative fiction database. So can you tell us what inspired you to create it? And can you give us some recommendations? Where should we start for good arrow ace representation in speculative fiction? I started the database because uh, when I was looking at lists of ace characters, or when I was asking for arrow rep, which is even more difficult. The, the haste list always had the like five, same ten books at most, uh, some of which are I would I would actually not recommend at all. So it, it was getting frustrating because I had a really hard time finding anything besides those, except when I talked to people directly. And also a lot of these lists, they don't specify exactly what type of ace you're, you have in this. It's, just, it's an asexual character, but are they demisexual? Are they sexual? Is this a romance? Should there be trigger warnings that I'm aware of? None of that, well, sometimes some of it, but most of the time you don't have that kind of information. So what I wanted to do was not so much recommend books as compile them. Because something else that happens is that a lot of people keep saying that there is little to no ace rip out there. And my database has of early October, October, when I really worked on it last, exceeded 200 entries. That's 200 different characters. Those are 200 different characters that air heart, ace, or arrow, or both. And and uh, finding a romantic rep was really hard because I, I would ask for arrow, arrow recommendations because I was a kind of, I didn't clearly identify as a romantic yet, and I wanted to find stories with these characters to help myself and I couldn't because people kept breaking me, uh, recommending me asexual characters or, and even like clearly romantic, romantic asexual characters and that was really frustrating so I decided to do something about it and that's, that's how the database came to be and I started it in January and it's, so, yeah, it's not really, re- and also right now we have started adding uh, stuff that are not speculative fiction. So we have a lot of romance, mostly contemporary romance in it. Besides this, the speculative fiction, most of what I found is contemporary romance. That's really interesting and somewhat unexpected. Uh, I'm not surprised because a lot of the ace rep you will find is actually romance between uh, an asexual character and an allosexual character. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and when I added that, the kind of proportion between arrow characters and ace character really went uh, all the way towards the ace one. There's not a lot of actual in contemporary because a lot of what's being written is romance, and that makes it a lot harder. Right, I can imagine. So tell us where we can find you and where we can find your work. Okay, so my website is just as at com. Just though my name is Spacey, Spacey, sorry, spelled C-L-A-U-D-I-E-A-R-S-E-N-E-A-U-L-T, that.com. I'm on Twitter at C-L-H-2-O-R-A-R-S. Sorry, spelling is actually really hard in English. And that's where, and if you look for my name, you will usually find me. I tend not to have 
handles or uh, things that make me harder to find on the internet. So I have I have the Twitter handle that's kind of a French pun. It's a French chemistry pun on my name, but if you look for Claudia Sano, you should find me. And I'm also on Patreon at, at the same name. Awesome. Thank you so much, Claudia, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on Signal Boost. Make sure that you go check out Claudia's work and maybe buy some books. Welcome to the Skiffy Fanti Show. I'm Sean, and today on Signal Boost, we have Brandon O'Brien, speculative poet and poetry editor. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So to get us started, I kind of want to go with a general question, because a lot of what you do involves poetry. And so I really want to know what draws you particularly to the poetry medium? Well, I've been writing poetry before I even like started writing any SF. Like, poetry was the thing that I dedicated most of my youth to. Like, I have dozens and dozens of the kinds of poems that teenage boys are ashamed of when they reach their 20s um, piled up somewhere. Like, it was always a thing that I was attached to, that the form allowed you this ability to not just say things as they were or uh, in the ways that they were obviously being observed, but try to get to the heart of those experiences in ways that people could like legitimately feel and know in those kinds of like spiritual ways i want to say that everybody is already attached to but never actually find the words for like that's part of the reason why i really love poetry it's part of the reason why i love reading good poetry and part of the reason why i try my very best to write like the poems that i've really enjoyed well, excellent. So I think it's amusing that you mentioned you, you probably have like folders full of all of that stuff you wrote when you were young, which I have to ask, did you also have like an emo phase? I had God. It never occurred to me as emo until I became an adult and looked <laughs> back at it and was like, do people, do, do 12 year olds even know these words? Why did I use this word here? And, uh, so much like, unnecessary angst about things that weren't actually taking place in my life. Lots of attachment to the validation of others. Unnecessary poems about death. And like, it was only, I think that everybody needs an emo face in hindsight because it's only through like stretching metaphor in the way that teenagers do that you get to discover exactly how flexible me- metaphor is. So I'm grateful for those things, but God, I wouldn't write a poem like that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Same thing, right? Lots of angst. Yeah, I mean, teenage experience is kind of homogenous. No matter where you are, people have the same things going on in their lives. Uh, they hate their teachers, they hate their parents, um, they wish that people would love them. And then you get more mature about those feelings. But if you don't express those feelings as a child first, you'll never express them at all. So That's a really good point. Yeah, and, and poetry can be a really effective way of expressing a lot of that, especially since a lot of times when you're young and you write poetry, it's usually private, kind of for yourself. So Yeah, 
although I I had very strange personal story that I usually hate to tell, but now I like to tell it. There was a brief point in my high school life where writing poetry stopped being private because people noticed that I would write it during classes that I didn't actually pay attention in. And that turned into this one moment in a math class where a boy that I never really spoke to because I went to an all-boys school that is on the same campus as an all-girls school that is separated by a lobby. And one of the boys in my class goes, so you write poetry. What if I paid you to write a poem for me to get this girl to like me? And I was like, that's stupid, but it's an easy way to make $20. (laughs) So I did it. And that became a business for like, I want to say it lasted longer than a year even. That is how I bought food at the cafeteria. That is how I traveled to places. People bought poems from me so they could get a girl's attention. I can't tell you whether it worked or not, but it happened. And one of my performance pieces, because I also do performance poetry, was about me talking about the fact that in hindsight, that was a very manipulative thing to do to girls that I've never met. And I'm never going to do it again. Okay, so let's let's dive in, you know, to something maybe less terrifying than our our teenage years. <laughs> but I, I want to get into before we talk specifically about some of your work to some of the influences, you know, in terms of the poetry that you really love. Like, so who are some of the poets that just for you are just the go-to people? My tastes are generally all over the place. As I kind of alluded to earlier, a lot of my previous experiments with poetry were very classical, even when I was very young, which was in relationship to a lot of Dickinson and Frost that I would have studied in classes. I also read a lot of Caribbean poetry, of course. Martin Carter, especially, the like one of the poets that I really, really appreciated uh, the work of. There are other people that I have strange relationships with calling the names of now, because some of them turned out to be creeps, but still. So it was like my experiences with the work that I read and the work that I tried to emulate was a lot of attempting to make Caribbean things sound classical and sound like the kinds of things that white people would read, which is which I'm kind of ashamed of saying right now, but it's the truth. And then that kind of merged with my experience with performance poetry and became an experiment in how to make things sound the way that I want people to hear them when they just read it. And all of those influences are really local influences that I'm sure if I called all of their names right now, nobody would be able to tell who they are. Um, Maybe people know Roger Bonnet Agard because he works in the United States now, but because I do a lot of work with local organizations, those things are the things that that come up when it comes to me thinking about poetry a lot, uh, local voices, local work from organizations like the Two Cents Movement, the Poet Society of Trinidad and Tobago. So yeah, my work is actually really like painfully local in that regard. I never really thought of myself as a speculative poet until really, really recently because of those things. But part of the reason why I appreciate speculative poetry as a result is because one of the things that I discovered as a result of thinking of myself as a speculative poet is that a lot of the things that are unique to the Caribbean experience are naturally fantastic. 
in the ways that we describe them. Our folklore is front and center in a lot of the ways that we see the world, our relationship with the outside world, and especially with the Western Hemisphere as an island in the Caribbean that has resources relative to the rest of the Caribbean, but isn't a world superpower like the US or Europe, is really like politically charged in ways that show themselves in uh, in science fictional ways and you really, really think about them. It's like, yeah, those things just kind of bubble up and collide with the work that I've read and the work that I want to write and just like congeal into fully formed poems. So... So this is great, because I think up to this point, we hadn't actually mentioned where you're from, although I, I suspect some folks might have heard, you know, you have a little bit of an accent, so you can yep. figure it might be somewhere south of Florida. But uh, but I'm glad you brought that up, because you, you started raising one of the things that I'm interested in with your own work. Um, you know, I was thinking in particular of, of two poems, because you've been published in places like Uncanny and Strange Horizons, um, which are speculative places. And you have these two great poems, Population Changes and Birthplace, and Strange Horizons and Uncanny, respectively. And it seemed to me that, and and I think uh, now I'm right, I was guessing before, but now I feel very right, that these poems in some way are very much dealing with sort of the social uh, and political history of the Caribbean from a very personal perspective. And I don't know if that was, that it seems to me that that's where, that is kind of what you were working with with these works, but they're, they're really... I, I'm trying to think of what's the word I'm looking for, but like there's each of them has a moment when I just feel like my heart stops because you say something very profound and very, I, I want to say terrifying, but terrifying is the wrong word. Is it? Is it the wrong word? I mean, maybe in the case of population changes, certainly the last section has a pretty intense. Um, but anyway, so I guess I get you to kind of talk about, you know, how, if you're injecting some of your own sort of personal point of view into your work and how, how it kind of plays into that from your own perspective as somebody from the Caribbean. I do want to preface by saying I don't usually make great pronouncements about my work, but if someone has read Population Changes and isn't afraid at the end of the poem, something is wrong with either the poem or that reader, because Population Changes is a particularly serious piece. And both of the both of the pieces that you mentioned, when I thought about them, I didn't think of them in like uniquely uniquely Caribbean ways. Although I did think think about them in the wider context of the African diaspora, because both of them are science fictional lenses of points in uh, the history of people of color that are like really really clear and stark when you find those points. Um, birthplace being a conversation about the transatlantic slave trade and population changes being a conversation about violence in the age of technology. Both of those things are unique to the experience of the African diaspora, but not unique to the African diaspora in the Caribbean. That's happening in the US as well. That's happening in um, places like the Middle East, people, those experiences are experiences that they're having as well. And there are moments when I think very, very specifically about Caribbean experiences in my work. For instance, there's a poem that I have in the first issue of Reckoning called Papa Bois and the Boy, which is, one, a reference to a folkloric character in Trinidad and Tobago, but is also talking about 
climate change and um, ecological conservation, specifically as it pertains to an experience that I think is unique to the Caribbean, the experience of rapidly seeking development in order to prove yourself to world superpowers around you and as a result losing the nature around you. But those things even aren't uniquely Caribbean or uniquely Trinidadian. They're, un- they're the unique experience of communities of people of color attempting to make their place in a world that has robbed them of several years of progress. Uh, it's just that I'm having those conversations uniquely from the perspective of somebody who is living one of those types of lives, but I'm not living an African-American life. I'm not I'm not living multiple other lives of multiple other people of color. I'm not living the Middle Eastern Muslim life. I'm not living the London-born East Indian life. I'm living my life in the Caribbean and attempting to view as many lives as possible through my work. I think it's interesting that, that uh, the way you kind of phrase it is in a sense like, you know, you are coming from your own sort of personal perspective, as I guess one might expect, but in a way at trying to grasp at something that is universally shared by a group, which may have multiple, multiple, you know, identities within it, but which have a shared history in a sense, which I think is really interesting, because sometimes I think, and the reason I ask this question is, you know, oftentimes when we talk about the Caribbean, we want to talk about it as like something that is somewhat time separated from thing that the other sort of diasporic identities and, and so on when there may actually be deeper connections there we need to be thinking about something that i actually do in my work a little bit which is trying to make those connections a little bit more than just thinking about it like it's just one island and everything that happens here is like it's just this thing and it's not connected to other things yeah because they're all coming from sources there are sources that are multiple times diluted by the um, struggles of the Middle Passage, um, the struggles of slavery, and constantly attempting to work oneself up to a level of first world, quote unquote, first world development. But they're still there. And the work to reinforce those things is so much stronger and so much more important as a result of it being so diluted. And it's why um, good creative work in the Caribbean and other parts of the diaspora is so much more important because it's one of the few opportunities you have to not only reinforce those through lines among communities of people who may not have been exposed to those things or may have been so removed from those things that they no longer discover what those things mean to them, but to let the world know that those through lines still exist and that those through lines don't make a place less developed or less interesting or more primitive or any of the other things that people tend to attach to the global south on a regular basis. That I can write about things that have come from Africa and changed shape in the Caribbean in a way that will make somebody who has been to neither of those places still be interested. That's that's fantastic. Okay, so we got to switch gears because we talked about your work a little bit, but now we got to talk about the work you do for a little magazine some people probably have heard of called Fire Magazine. And so for folks, I think a lot of people who listen to the show probably have an idea of what it is, but would you like to tell a little bit of about what the magazine is and how you actually got involved? Fire Magazine, Fire Magazine of Black spe- Speculative Fiction is presently wrapping up its first year of issues, its first four issues, making progress into year two. It came about as 
a group of multiple conversations in the ether, of course, about the representation of black writers in science fiction and, and fantasy in general. Those are conversations that the industry has been having for quite some time. I was uh, a member of a, a group of uh, science fiction and fantasy writers and creators uh, known to ourselves as the Negarati Space Station, um, which includes Troy Wiggins and Justina Ireland. And we were having that conversation in that space for a good long time about what kind of work needs to be done in order to improve the public visibility of black science fiction and fantasy writers who already exist and have already been making work and also encourage new writers to know that that is a space in which they can create that work. And at some point, I can't even remember who it might have been. It might have been like multiple people kind of popping up in certain spaces uh, between Troy and Justina and Fenderson Jelly Clark, who is a talented writer as well, and contributes to the process in his own way about why don't we just do the thing? Why don't we just make it happen? And then like, I'm sure at some point somebody would have asked, well, how, how does this happen? And, we just decided in, that we would actually just do the thing and make it happen. And it's because the team that we have is like so diverse and talented and everybody knows exactly what their capacity is and their contribution to the team is that uh, Justina and Troy and definitely LD Lewis, who kinds of kind of holds everything together and makes sure that the site doesn't break into splinters and stab us to ensure that we could make something that actually properly illustrates exactly how much work black people have been doing in the genre for quite some time now, for years, for decades, without getting any like proper recognition in that. Uh, genre and as a result we've discovered some of oh i'd like to think some of the best work of last year from black writers or from any writer in the genre personally especially poetry which is already such a small bracket of the genre but every almost everything that i read as a reader for as uh, the poetry editor for fire has been some of the best poetry that i've read anywhere and uh, that's like a really humbling experience for me. And I like doing that work and being able to expose other people to the vastness of black speculative fiction. Well, that's fantastic. So as you already mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned it, uh, you actually are serving as the poetry editor. You know, as the poetry editor, uh, you know, how do you actually approach, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of process of kind of going through the work and what you ultimately look for in poetry? So, maybe because, well, I mean, part of it is because I've engaged with poetry for such a long period of time that I can say one of the things that I think with authority about poetry is that um, because its relationship to language is a little bit stronger and denser because of its compression of space, it takes... Uh, a bit more effort to be able to tell where a poem is going when it's written well. And what I mean by that is not that a, a good poem conceals its intentions until the very last stanza or some kind of garbage like that. Um, but 
because of that compression of information, there are a lot of things that are usually going on in a very well-written poem for me uh, that one line serves multiple purposes in that regard. And this is not, of course, this is not always the case. Some some poems are um, more successfully direct and stuff like that. But one of the things that I'm looking for as a result when I read a, a poem that I like is how much information is it giving me? Because a good poem tends to have a great deal of information going on. It tends to tell so much more about its setting in time and place, um, the characters that are present, the worldview around it in so little words, in so few words, rather, that the end result is a good poem should make you feel like you read a whole short story. And I feel like I've succeeded in finding poems that do that and putting them in fire. My only, like, and this is not necessarily part of the answer to your question, but I will say that perhaps the one frustration is that I know so many talented writers who, like, constantly come up either on Twitter or sometimes even personally and ask about finding space for their work in fire and never send it because they're worried that they're not doing speculative poetry right because they read something and think that they can't do those things. And I've read work that doesn't aspire to be anybody else's work and is still fulfilling the that fundamental final point that I think a work is that a poem is supposed to do, which is t- does it tell its story completely in language that I find engaging? And it, I want them to be able to send their work there. I want as many black writers from across the world to be able to feel comfortable in knowing that this is the kind of space that will actually do their poetry justice because that's the kind of work that I'm looking for and that I trust that people can be able to give it to me. Well, awesome. Okay, so would you let everybody know where they can find you and your work? So they can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Am I anywhere else? Tumblr, although I'm barely on Tumblr, at The Rising Tides. That's the rising t-i-t-h-e-s i know i made it hard for you but when you find me you will not be disappointed you can obviously find fire at fire at fire lit mag on twitter all of all of the editor's information will be there as well and oh right yes there's patreon as well i have a patreon for a a serial novel that i've been working on for the for the past forever it's patreon.com slash the rising tides that not only helps me pay for that piece of fiction that you get to explore on your own, but it has essentially allowed me to do a lot more work like review work and uh, help me branch out in some of my own fiction creation as well uh, while not having to worry about eating. Well, awesome. So thanks so much, Brandon, for joining us and telling us about your poetry, your Patreon page and Fire Magazine. Thanks for having me. And obviously, thank you listeners for joining us on Signal Boost, this fantastic episode.
thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at SkiffyInfanti at gmail.com, on Twitter at SkiffyInfanti, on Facebook at The Skiffy Infanti Show, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash SkiffyInfanti. Our intro and outro music comes from The Launch by Cronux. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.